Welcome to The Q, Conversations in Digital Media. This podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media, digital campaign execution and optimization since 2004. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Q. This is your host, James McNeil. I hope you do are all doing very well, keeping safe and practicing social distancing out there. Uh, if you're in some states where things are starting to be lifted a little bit and the weather's getting a little warmer, hopefully you have uh, some things to do and you're keeping yourself busy, keeping all the kids busy. I know that uh, it's towards the end of the school year and a lot of those parents out there are ready for a, a nice break, <laughs> needed a summer break just as much as the kids do. Uh, but hopefully you all are doing healthy and uh, just keeping safe. And this podcast will provide you with some uh, fresh content to listen to on some downtime. Uh, today's guest, we had Joe Quello join us. He is the head of strategy and operations of One Iota Productions, and he lives in Southern California. Um, it's interesting guy in terms of his background, how he got into the music entertainment industry and actually worked for MTV for 10 years back in the early 2000s and then kind of started getting into the education space um, and obviously has been dealing with production for One Iota and as you can imagine in LA there's not a lot of production going on right now uh, with the social distancing and quarantine shelter in place regulations. We discussed that a little bit, talked a little bit about how things might be lifted soon and what maybe the industry is doing and how they're prepping to bring back productions like Good Morning America and having a crowd or The View in New York, which has uh, 100 people sit in as a guest and watch the show. Um, they handle all of that, meaning uh, scheduling, transferring people from place to place, getting them in the right spot um, in the studio. And it's really cool. Uh, if you've ever done a live show or live taping before, you might have actually gone through one iota before. So uh, this will be an interesting podcast for you all to listen to and just uh, learn about the space, uh, how it's changed during quarantine, and what sort of future is in store for live productions. Uh, again, this is Joe Coelho, and you're in the queue. Well, Joe, welcome to the queue. We really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy guy, um, and you probably had to do a lot to stay busy in this time, but uh, I know you're in Southern California. Um, what has the quarantine been like for you? Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I appreciate uh, being able to uh, you know, share kind of our experiences during this time, but also kind of generally. And it's, it's an odd... Um, focused sort of repetitive and in some ways illuminating time for sure i think there's the personal and the business and they're completely tied together because of the fact that i'm at home 24 7 now for i don't know nine weeks something like that <laughs> can't keep track yeah and you know jokingly the, the groundhog day um cliche is true you know you you sort of get up my kids I have two girls, five and ten, so we're homeschooling. Uh, in a previous life, I was a teacher. I still I still teach at a graduate level, but um, this isn't normal on any level. So there's challenges there. Both my kids are still thrilled to not be in school. I don't know what that says about us as parents encouraging them to enjoy school, but um, so there's that personal challenge, and then 
on the practical side, it's, it's overall been really good for my company in terms of communication, strangely. The expectation was that we would lose something crucial by not being in the same room. And, and I think interpersonally, there's certainly a lack of um, connectedness to other humans. But in terms of the practical nature of executing projects and getting things done and, and actually expanding beyond the uh, positional kind of job description limits uh, has been great for us. So, you know, I, I would say the, uh, you know, the only downside is, is the sort of bigger metaphysical, you know, existential, whatever overstatement you want to make uh, nature of this time. Right. So, um, you know, and we're in the entertainment business. So even today, I think Gavin Newsom or yesterday put out some projected sort of guidelines on reopening production, but, you know, SAG-AFTRA and the unions and they weren't even consulted on that conversation. So, so there's a political side to this whole thing in California. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're not at the top of the list. We're not, we're a part of production, but very specifically productions that have audiences, right? So if you're doing a single camera, you know, we did Will and Grace for years, that's going to be a very different experience for us. Um, social distancing in a time of, um, you know, or in a setting that's inherently not conducive to social distancing. Um, so we may be at the tail end of, of kind of the rebirth of production as we sort out kind of exactly what we can do and should do and what people are comfortable attending. And so in a lot of respects, we're really, you know, and we're doing a lot of research. We're a company that does a ton of research. So we've been reaching out. We have 4 million people on our platform who have created a profile in order to get tickets, right? And so we've been taking the temperature, probably not a good uh, metaphor right now, but we've been asking people how they feel about reopening and what sacrifices they're willing to make. So we, we know quite a lot about how people are feeling about attending tapings and events. Um, but it's, you know, it's hard to know answering a survey versus getting in your car and perceiving actual risk are two different things. So we'll have to see. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's an interesting, I'd like to know, I mean, I don't know if you can share a little bit of, of some of the response and being in Southern California, we're, we're here in Austin, Texas, you know, we're very, um, I guess, liberal-minded communities, kind of in a bu bubble, and so to speak. And I know there's been abundance of caution taken by both of those places. But yep. what is the general feeling in response to, you know, are people ready? <laughs> Do you think people are ready to start going out and, and joining a crowd? I mean, yeah, what, what type of responses have you been getting? I would say there's a desire for it to go back to some semblance that's undeniable. I have 90% of people we talk to are looking forward to that. That's not surprising. But as I said, the practical notion of, of balancing risk for entertainment um, in LA proper, and we, and we do, we have people from all over the country. We do events for the NFL and we do things in Chicago and um, even in Iowa, you know, we, we have random events that are one-offs or, um, speaking engagements that we might handle, you know, for, for, um, Michelle Obama, you know, we, we helped that audience for her tapings, uh, her uh, kind of sit down conversations that she had during her book tour. So, so we amass kind of, um, this 
cross country, cross demographic group of people. Um, and so it does vary. The politics are, have become even more pronounced, I think, in the past <clears throat> probably three weeks. So that the, the science is sort of taking a backseat um, as more conservative people are, are feeling uh, that their rights are being violated. So if we ask someone in the middle of the country versus Los Angeles, there's a significant difference. Um, but it's, you know, California is actually really diverse in terms of politics as well. If you go an hour south of here to Huntington Beach or 45 minutes, you know, there, there are some of the biggest protests that are happening. They were some of the first in the country against stay-at-home orders. And um, so there's a definite appetite, uh, you know, for people to, to come back. I, I don't think it'll be a problem to get people to show up. I think it'll be a natural filter of people who are more cautious staying away and then people who are really just probably slightly younger and more willing to to take a risk will show up but you know our, our demos are across the board we do we do good morning america audience we do the view like those are older women for the most part um although good morning america is, is male and female uh, the view is obviously predominantly female who are in the audience. So those older people are not going to take the same risk. Certainly in New York City, where they've almost everyone knows someone who's passed away. You know, it's, it's like that's a whole different experience than what the rest of the country is feeling. So in New York, it'll be even more challenging. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And and with the, the people that you do work with in, in the programs, um, do you, you probably work closely with uh, the producers, the talent, and are you hearing any words of them trying to kick up, start it up, like basically kick off the dust and start to, to think about coming yeah. back? Yeah, I think, I think everyone's having those conversations. Um, there's no question that the folks who are used to an audience, the reason our business has been successful and has been around for 18, 20 years is, you know, our, our audiences are a character in these shows in that when, when Jimmy Kimmel walks out, it's a small space. There's 140 people in seats. He can see everyone's face. It's not like he's in a, you know, arena or, or we're watching him on monitors. He's feet away from everyone. Um, and the energy from the audience is as crucial to the show as anything. And he'll say that and he, you know, he, and he notices everything. And he's a super talented guy who naturally feeds off that energy. So that's true for almost every show. It's, it's different in the way it expresses itself, right? And that smaller audiences have kind of more control of the energy in the room. Um, and you guys can, you know, you, you, as people from a data perspective, you know, the, the more people you have, um, sort of the, the greater the consistency over time, it sort of flattens. You know, if you put eight wrong, sullen, not fun people in a row, it's just like having a, a party, a dinner party with an asshole, you know, it just changes yeah. the energy. <laughs> That's uh -huh. very true. So or we, uh, Thanksgiving at my parents' house, you know, that, that it always turns out <laughs> that way. But the, um, the, the, the energy and, and, and the crucial nature of that, that feedback loop for talent, we, we know that they miss it. 
you know, James Corden, I know misses it, you know, um, Jimmy, I'm sure misses it. So uh, there was a fear that I had that maybe these shows will realize they don't really need an audience, you know, um, that's not going to happen. You know, if you watch late night, as a viewer, you miss the audience. You can, you can feel the difference. Um, the sort of charming DIY thing is, I think, wearing off for the consumer. Um, yeah. Purely from an entertainment standpoint, I think we all have this go, go with the flow. We're grateful for anything feeling. Um, mm-hmm. But we all want things to feel, the energy to feel normal. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a constant reminder it's, it feels, I mean, I'm a, I'm a late night uh, show watcher in between Colbert, Jimmy, the two Jimmies, and even last week tonight with John Oliver. I mean, those have been, yeah. they rely on that audience feedback and the, the jokes don't land. You can tell the host is just, you know, struggling in some sort of way of trying to find uh, the response because they feed off that. But then yeah. like as a viewer, you're right. In the beginning, we all kind of wanted some normalcy and, and just seeing those people do what we're all doing. But now it's, it's a constant reminder. It's like a constant reminder that we're actually, you know, it's still stuck in this. Yeah. I think um, the other component to that is it, the, the people in, in the audience don't just contribute to, to the program, right? You, they go out and they share on social media. They go out and they are, uh, vocal about their experiences and, and there's a ripple effect in terms of fandom that we're kind of crucial to as well that, that isn't purely digital or it's not just data driven it's it's these people become your sort of um, advocates for the show or for the talent or they, they they follow things in a different way and and you know our our very existence and and the the process whereby people can get free tickets to events they have to take some steps and it, and it, it filters out the disinterested. So we have a, a unique group of people who actually got off their couches and went to something, um, which we, from a marketing perspective is gold because you, you, you really have filtered out the people who it's one thing to, to, you know, like a post. Um, it's another to create a profile, request a ticket, hope you get one, and then show up physically, which in LA, as you know, that's not, nothing's easy. You know, parking's never easy. Our processes can be really long if you've ever been to a taping of something. Um, or, you know, we do, we do the voice and it's, you're going to park in a mile away from your destination at Universal and we'll shepherd people back and forth and, um, and so we're, you know, we're, people are looking forward and planning, but you know, we, and we are too, we want to be the, the, the leader because we are going to be the first point of contact. We're going to be the ones messaging these folks, what to prepare for when the process starts back up. We're going to be the people potentially taking temperature of folks as they come in. Is there a way for people to, um, who have been tested to, to ver- verify that they have like, you know, how, how safe can we make it without violating people's rights? And, um, so, so those are all practical questions. Um, the, you know, the fear that I mentioned that 
people would get used to no audience. How are we going to do with an audience that's all in a mask? What does it sound like when 80 people are clapping and, and shouting through masks and the cutaway shots? Talk about a reminder. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's, you know, and, and if you're on a 140 person and, you know, you do the math and you're six feet apart, we might have 36 people kind of yeah. like a small set. That's, that's, that energy is not great either. So, no. so there's a ton of unanswered questions. I think um, there's an appetite for everybody to get back into production. Audience may be the very last thing, same way it will be in sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, we've pivoted and done a lot of, to, to being a digital events company in the past probably eight weeks, right? So mm-hmm. that's exciting for us too, because we needed to be in that space because it's not one or the other. But we've, we've essentially just been a portal for uh, experiences and opportunities. And, and now we're trying to create opportunities and experiences that may still be ticketed, but are not mm-hmm. physical experiences. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So, and I do want to dive into kind of your start, your your background, where you're from, mm-hmm. but I do want to ask you, since you're kind of already touched on it, is there a virtual experience that is kind of been, I mean, first of all, first question is, was there ever any expo- exploration for that prior to this? And has yeah. it sped up the process? <laughs> That's right. I mean, you know, the, the unique thing about One Iota, um, it was started by um, Rob Crawford um, and Ben Biscotti 20 years ago. Um, they, they were in the MTV world grabbing attractive people to go to the spring break beach house you know, <laughs> down in Miami or South Padre. <laughs> yeah, or Jersey Shore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so they, they sort of um, over time and they started at Kimmel the day Jimmy went live, you know, this first episode, they even did um, Dave Chappelle's block party years and years ago. So you can actually, they mentioned one Iota in the one of their, they loaded up buses to get there. And so they were, they were these two scrappy younger guys. And, and then they just built this really unique niche business. Um, but one of the things that, that they brought me aboard for was, you know, they, they'd been an execution company since day one. So if you've worked in production, you, each thing is a standalone event, each taping, each, you know, and those, those kind of buckets of, um, beginning and end they on, on the micro level it's like you hit record and your audience is there and then you finish and you load out and then you do that again tomorrow and then you have obviously seasons of these things and then um and so we're a part of a lot of those shows most late night daily morning shows all those things and and we count every taping as an event so last year we had about four thousand events um, counting each of those tapings as its own thing, but also a ton of one-offs. Um, so when I came aboard, everyone was sort of waking up to execute for the client and there wasn't a, a great deal. They had just been killing it doing that. And, and so Rob hired me, uh, and we had, we had met through a, a startup that I was running for a brief period, a, a research startup. Uh, but anyway, the, the challenge for me was to help Rob build more of an infrastructure, HR, um, operational optimization, like all these things that really nobody had 
been tasked with waking up and overseeing ever in the company. So my role was a whole new role. I, I didn't fill an existing position. Um, and one of the things I said from the beginning uh, was that we have a community that doesn't perceive itself as such. And, and the only way to do that is through digital content and um, reward systems and gamification, slightly tired term, but still valid in some respects from a game theory perspective. And, and really thinking about changing the psychology of somebody who requests a ticket from, this is the portal, this is the free version of Ticketmaster for TV tapings, to I'm joining a community that offers me more than just that ticket. Um, the challenge for anything like this is most people will have an experience, even if you've requested tickets multiple times, of, of not getting a ticket from us, right? Not getting to go to the event. So when we post, say, Nicki Minaj is, is performing for the BMAs at XYZ subway terminal, we might have 100,000 people request tickets and they might be for 2,000 people or it might be 500, right? right? So a ton of people are disappointed. Thankfully, people perceive it more the way, you know, if I go, if I go buy a lottery ticket at 7-Eleven and then Saturday night I realize I didn't win, I don't want to go to 7-Eleven and kick the guy's ass. You know, it's not as, like, most people perceive us in the same way. Like, okay, I didn't yeah. get it, but it's not like I paid for a ticket and I, I got, you know, uh, it, or it, it's like I didn't, I, I want to have the luck to get it, but I'm not resentful if I don't. So there's still a lot of positive energy um, towards us as a brand. So the long answer, Keith will tell you I, I over-communicate and my wife will tell you it's a, it's a natural problem. But the, uh, the long answer to that question is really two years ago, we started talking about how to, how to create a digital online community of people, of, of fans, that has reason to come back between ticket requests or to allow us to communicate actively towards them. You know, I have to turn in my leased car. I don't even know if the thing is open in two weeks. And it's, it's, we don't want to be like that. It's not like I picked up my car at Martin Chevrolet and then I came back periodically to just hang out with the guys. You know, I, I don't deal with them except pick up and drop off. And we're trying to change that in terms of our community as well. It just, right. I request and I get it. And then I don't think about it again. So I want another ticket. So what happened in the past eight weeks is two key things. One schedules opened up. <laughs> our core business disappeared. That's my yeah. positive spin on the collapse of our revenue. Um, and, and two, everybody was focused so much on online communication with each other that it felt very, very seamless and, and um, timely to really mobilize everybody around some simple goals. One's to launch a, a very clear fandom blog on our homepage, which we've never done. So we're, we've built a really cool blog that actually is, is um, sort of in beta, um, soft launch tomorrow. You guys can go to oneeditor.com and see it. But we created kind of a, a media team right before COVID hit. So I had just hired one of the Kardashian social media people, which was uh, a very easy thing to push through because she's <laughs> she understands. Um, 
And then uh, a really great filmmaker kid, really just graduated from North Texas randomly. Uh, he sent me his reel and sent me his, um, a really great uh, letter. And so we met with him. We interviewed probably 100 people for these positions each. Um, and we gave it to this 23-year-old from, from my alma mater, which, is, which I have no allegiance to literally at all. It was just a, an interesting, serendipitous thing. So we've got this really young creative guy. We've got this social media person who's great. And then we stole um, the head of community from Lime Scooters. Um, and so we had just put this little team together. And I've got a great, I've got a great graphic designer um, that we brought on a few months before that. But So that's a team that I sort of really manage. And then the minute this happened, it was, okay, these things we've been talking about, we're, we're doing them right now. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's, been, that's been fun, and it's kept, I think, the whole team feeling motivated. So we found out that people are journalism majors who are writing pieces for our, our blog, essentially, our feed. Um, we've got really creative people helping with content. We found out that people are graphic designers that otherwise are just working at events, you know, moving audience around. Um, so that's been really fun and positive. And then you have this tangible output that we think our fans are going to care about. Um, but we also want to be the place that people roll out of bed and want to and, and go to us for information. So we're aggregating every single free digital event on the web daily and updating that. So you can have one place to go to figure it out. And then we're creating events initially with nonprofits that we believe in. Um, so the pivot for me was also from the beginning for the company, and I was part of the pivot, was to create a media division that would make content. So we actually did a couple of podcasts. We did a really cool one that um, may or may not see the light of day. It just depends on the deal. But uh, but yeah, it was, you know, it was, that's something that we wanted to do. And my background at MTV and making content um, and so, you know, we're doing an event for War Child, which is a really great organization um, who right now these kids are in one war zones with COVID couldn't be in a worse position. You know, there's 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 already no infrastructure in terms of healthcare, And so with that, we're functioning really as a production partner. So we're actually going to produce the content, work with talent, work with them and create a show that will be a fundraiser that we're going to customize for Twitch and customize for Instagram live and customize for, you know, YouTube and whatever other platforms they choose. So, so those are, we're going to make some, create some events for our people. And then we're going to um, aggregate opportunities for them to do things outside of our world and just serve as a conduit. And then ultimately, you know, we, we're going to start doing smaller, intimate, uh, kind of educational thing. So we're going to start a weekly yoga series. Not, none of this is unique to us. It's all happening already kind of naturally. But what is unique is we have these 4 million people who look at us as the place to go for events. So we want to make sure we're the ones giving them some of it uh, while also pointing them to other events. Right. Yeah. I mean, everybody needs content at this point and yeah. that's, there's not enough out of, out there for, at this time. I mean, I know I can, there's only so much uh, Netflix that I can watch or I, I know that even with the push It's like going of, to the fridge three times a day and expecting there to be something different in there. It's like, yeah, 
Netflix and my refrigerator are very similar in that way. <laughs> I probably go to Netflix more than I actually go to my yeah. fridge at this point. Uh, but well, well let's look. Yeah, right. <laughs> it may be a little healthier, but oh, not unhealthy, but the yeah. drinking's gone up. <laughs> yeah, well, not a question. <laughs> uh, well, let's go back. You mentioned your, your past yeah. and, um, and some ties uh, going to the University of or North Texas. Um, what, what, uh, so where are you from? Where did you start out? What, what really got you interested in this technology entertainment space? Um, well, you know, I, when I do look back, um, I realized I had no plan. Um, it's been you know, the circuitous path from going to, uh, you know, growing up in Dallas and Garland, Texas, my parents, I'm first generation. My dad's a Cuban immigrant. My mom's from Mexico. Um, and, you know, and then, and then in many respects, very quickly recognizing things that I might be good at, right. Which profound sarcasm and, and, uh, you know, attacking others before they could attack me and building this sort of, um, somewhat, uh, interesting approach to being successful, which was kind of an outsider, but establishing myself as kind of a quintessential insider. Right. And, and when I look back, those kinds of feelings and the way that I perceive myself in the world haven't really changed all that much. So when I was in high school, I was certainly very interested. I've always been an artist and uh, love music, friends and bands, all those things. Um, and obsessive really about, alternative music in the, you know, in the 90s. Who was your, who was your band back, back in the day? I mean, you know, I loved the Smiths. I loved, uh, REM. I saw REM, I don't know, 12 times probably. Um, you know, the, I wasn't breaking enormous amounts of ground, but you know, there's this guy, Robin Hitchcock, who opened for REM that I had already loved. And I, and it was very much part of my identity to be a discoverer. Um, I mean, it was such a profoundly different, world you even mtv which i loved you know you had to sit through things you didn't like right in the hope that something you liked showed up and then you would discover things that you thought you wouldn't like that you ended up falling in love with and you know now everything's algorithmically tailored to a point in my past where i started looking for content um so i'm not really being challenged anymore if i'm a kid i'm not discovering things in the same way i'm not having to sit through the thing i dislike you know sit through uh Cindy Lauper, so hot for teacher comes on, but you know, you, yeah. you don't, you don't have that, that dynamic doesn't exist. Um, so well, even in my generation, we had multiple MTV channels and like yeah. different channels for, for that venue. And then obviously mm -hmm. with the, the advent of, uh, the internet and, uh, sharing music and with LimeWire and Kazaa, and that was mm -hmm. how I found my, that was my generations. Now you're right. Like now with the Spotify thing, you listen to two or five, two or five different artists, it'll just develop your algorithm for you. Yeah. And, and there's no, how do you evolve taste? from a creative right. perspective, I find it um, disheartening a little bit. I, I love SoundCloud for that reason. SoundCloud mm -hmm. is more of a independent, um, they're still gonna serve you up what you like, but but they are fundamentally about independent music and discovery, so. But, but yeah, so um, went to college, Texas A&M for two years on a, a scholarship. My parents couldn't afford college. Um, thankfully I got scholarships. And then I dropped out for a year and uh did manual labor with a friend keith edelman and then we 
I sort of realized this sucks really bad house painting. And, um, and for me, there's been a handful of moments where I made decisions, right? So it was like, okay, I really have always loved art. I've never focused on it because academically I needed to excel in order to get a scholarship and all that stuff. So I went to art school, painting and drawing. Um, and then, you know, ended up over time. I always wanted to move to California. I came out for graduate school. Um, I became a teacher, which was essentially my sort of a version of Peace Corps or something for me, you know, inner city, Long Beach. Yeah. Taught martial ed, got a master's in education. Um, and then I'd worked on a documentary project with a friend who was working at BH1. Um, I also worked at a eyewear company designing sunglasses. I mean, you know, all over the place, creative director for that. Uh, but I ended up working on a show one summer when I was a teacher. A friend was an executive producer on a, uh, a pilot for MTV. And I was a PA. I was, I don't know, 31 years old to 32, getting coffee for a bunch of 23-year-olds. Um, but I wanted to learn about it. And it was, it was like, okay, cool, you know. And then you fast forward, stopped teaching, ended up getting hired at MTV as a music supervisor. Um, and that was, uh, you know, 2003, probably. Um, what did that things- job entail? What's a music super, what, what was the, the yeah. task, I guess, you had for a music supervisor? Well, that was the same question I had after I said I would do it. Um, <laughs> literally, I ran to a friend's house and was like, uh, I don't even know what this means. And he was the editor that worked on this other project. But anyway, um, you're really, you're responsible for the sound of the show. So it could be, it can range from you're sitting in the edit bay and actually working with the editor to drop in songs to working with a composer to ensure the score gets done properly. You know, licensing the music. We had a, an internal team that did all the business and legal affairs at Viacom. So we were the creatives. Um, so I, you know, I music supervised Pimp My Ride. I think the last season of Newlyweds or um, right out of the gate, I was doing these shows. And it was a freelance position. Um, and I realized there was no infrastructure for that whole part of the business. So I created that over time and went on staff about two years into it um, and created a new department, which turned out to be a career for me for 10 years, 10 plus wow. years. Um, and it was great. You know, it was it, what I loved about Viacom was you, it was distinctly creative. What you did impacted culture. Um, it didn't as much as it did in the nineties, but it was still significant. Um, you know, you would, you would finish an, an edit and, and find the perfect song for this thing and, or the perfect theme song. And then that song would become a hit song, you know, finding the, the Hills theme song was really cool. Right. And then to see that it became this phenomenon. And so you're sort of connected to things that give you instant kind of a jolt of being connected to pop culture. Um, and I love that that suited that same part of me that I mentioned when I was a kid, it's like insider outsider, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not making, and some of the shows I wasn't super proud of, obviously MTV did. Um, but I could, I could, I could say, well, at least I'm championing these independent artists to get their music seen and heard by tons of people and, you know, created those song IDs that pop up and show. So people knew who was playing. It was just a great run. I got to be sort of entrepreneurial with, without any risk. Um, and it was an incredible time. And, and towards the end of my time there, I wanted to pivot into to the digital side of things. 
um, politically ran afoul of my music boss by pursuing a role on the digital side with the head of digital. Um, but it was a calculated risk on my part. It's not like I figured I'd be 65 walking out of MTV building. Yeah. Um, it seemed, yeah, it seemed bizarre to me that, um, that we had a digital team and a music team. Like, it's just mm -hmm. like, it's like, I mean, the music meeting, sometimes I would joke that it's like a civil war reenactment because it's not real. We're arguing about video rotation in 2010. No one cared, but, but the infrastructure for that never went away. Um, and so my part of that team was, was super active because we were helping every show have a particular sound and reflect the brand and do interesting deals for that. Um, and my boss, Amy Doyle there was super supportive. Like I said, I, I, I took a calculated risk and wanted to pivot something else and that didn't end well for, for me there, but I knew it was possible. But what I did learn then was we built a platform called artist.mtv.com that no one wanted, but we built anyway. And, um, and that was my first real experience with the process of working with developers and, and really road mapping what a product is going to be and what are the limitations and finally understood why people were so exasperated with the development teams because, you know, it, this fix may be very small, but I'm only aware of that one fix and not of the 200 fixes that are in the pipeline ahead of it. And so you learn all those things, right? You sort of get a firsthand look at what it's like to build something. So when I left MTV, um, I had a lot of time, I had a contract, so that was nice. I had some time to think about what's next. And, and the thing that it came back to was just a real passion for the middle class of artists, the people who, whose livelihood was disappearing in the new kind of world we're in, not just in the creative world, just the whole world. Um, and so I ended up at TuneCore, which is a great company that sort of creates this um, very egalitarian system whereby you can have distribution for your music. Um, so I was chief creative officer there, which was really fun. Uh, did live events, did some big things at South by Southwest for a few years, a couple of years. Yeah, I definitely partook in some of that. Because, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, everybody. Fun stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but we were acquired after I was there for six months. I stayed for the 18-month retention period and, and, then, and then left and, you know, bopped around. Did this, uh, had invested in a small startup that did facial recognition kind of sentiment analysis probably four years ago. Um, really cool idea. Disney was a client out of the gate, you know, testing ABC stuff. And, um, but you know, that's a crazy world and I'm an entrepreneur in my mind. Um, uh, but I'm not great at begging people to value the proposition and pay for it or invest in it. So I did that for about a year and, um, and then ended up at, uh, where I am now. In the interim, I worked at another startup that built apps for celebrities, which was soul crushing. Um, and could only do that for a while. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned the going back to the MTV stuff uh, yeah. with, with just you being able to kind of establish your creative preferences for, say, a particular show, say the intro of a show. How does that normally work? Because I know I've I've been watching some shows even as a teenager. Yeah. I'd watch a show when I'd hear an artist I really liked. I'd be like, oh, hey, like that's such and such, and that's awesome. <laughs> Did you have total say in that, or were there lobbies for certain artists, or there was like, hey, 
this artist is so big right now, even though it's not my preference, we kind of have to put him in here. Like, how was that process, Meter? How was the decision? It's, it's a mix of all those things. Uh, um, at the end of it all, the showrunner is going to have to like it. So, you know, the, the class I currently teach music and media has a component of music supervision. One of the, we talk about the art of it, the business of it, the psychology of it, kind of the three things that you just talked about. It's like, there's really, this is the most perfect song. Um, but it's Bruce Springsteen and it's going to cost $80,000. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, the psychology of it, I can't get you Bruce Springsteen, but take a listen to these three options, one of which is terrible and two of them are viable and one is the one I want for him or her. And so you just work the magic to sort of win people over. You also have to, you also have to have earned the trust of these people creatively over time. So you end up working with a lot of the same people over the years and they know that you're going to find the right music. Then they're going to trust when you come to them and they're going to hear things differently. You know, it's one thing if, if, if I go to someone's house who is, I don't know, a, an amazing chef, and I know he is, I, I'm going to enjoy more, even if it's objectively not any better than something I might cook, right? So, so there's an element of that still in all business. If you trust me, my proposition or my proposal to you is going to be instantly weighted in my favor. If you think I'm a jerk, if I'm a, if I'm a pushy salesman, for people like me, it has the opposite effect. I'm not, I'm not sellable in that way. If, you're, if your product is cool and you're not objectionable to me, I'll, I'll buy it, right? Yeah. Some people, my wife, <laughs> if, you're, if, you're really, if you're a great salesman, Nikki will buy that thing. <laughs> I, I, it's a reverse for me, right? Yeah. So, so you're, you're kind of in this thing where you've got to, they got to think you're cool enough and your taste is good and you've got a track record and you're a good communicator and you make them feel safe. And because the, the, the undergirding of all of Hollywood and all creative endeavors is everyone's afraid of being discovered that they're a fraud, right? Cause it's like, even if you're a great writer and there's, there's an upper echelon of people that don't struggle necessarily with that on the most profound level, but it's like, I'm at the top of the reality TV game and am I, am I that talented or am I, I'm on B team, you know, all those things. So if you can kind of assuage some of that, then you can most often, if you're good, get the song that you want to be featured um, in, in this scene, but you're going to have to rally everybody around it subtly mm-hmm. because it's not the kind of, it's not the kind of role that I can tell you where you have the final say. So you've got to be somebody who's okay with that as well. Cause you're, just a contributor you're a part and, and most right. of entertainment is like that unless they're you know you're at the very very top you're collaborating you're you're if you're a set designer you're not you're not making your vision you're contributing your vision to somebody else's and hopefully the sum total is better so it's the same with music um and then you know there's there's budgetary restraints so if somebody i can't tell you how many times somebody says to me or has said to me well you know my cousin is manages a-list artist, so-and-so. She knows she's going to give us a song for free. And then you go, okay, well, the reality is so-and-so artists sold their publishing. So they, they are not really the owner of the IP in this instance. And right. they probably gave this artist a huge advance that they have to recoup 
and they don't like giving things away for free. Right. Um, and they don't own the master recordings because they have a rec- you know, it's just, there's this sort of naivete that relationships can make the business go away or because it's a soft product, it's, it's intangible in some way that you can just pretend it has no real value. And so there's a battle all the time with that. So the way that we did it was we'd say, okay, cool. I'll get you a quote on that. You don't ever say no. You say, okay, let me go try. And the quote comes back and it's 60,000 or 80,000. And you say, Hey, our whole budget is 40. Do you still want to do it? Um, and then they're the ones saying no. Right. So you waste some time, but you also don't damage the relationship so that you can find that replacement song without them feeling sort of defensive and, and that, that lesson stays true, as I was saying. It's like mm-hmm. everywhere since then is what you have to do. I think it's called normal human relationships, um, where you're trying to please people while still accomplishing what you think is best for them and yourself. And um, I haven't mastered it outside of, uh, out of work, I guess, but. <laughs> That's difficult. <laughs> it's not easy to do. Uh, well, with, you mentioned your, your teaching and the, the classes that you do, what, how has that changed? I, I know that there's been, there's a lot of parents out there uh, who have kids, you, yourself um, having some young ones and trying to keep them entertained, keep them yeah. focused. How, how difficult has it been on the college level? Uh, Cause I, you said they're grad classes, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How has it been during this time to keep their focus them engaged and you know what's their outlook you know because i know a lot of these students might be looking to either graduate this year or in the next coming semester i mean has there been psychologically i'm sure there's a lot going on in their heads yeah it's it's um so i teach in the spring and i actually had my final on march 6th maybe oh wow um thank god yeah so i was like they it all ended the minute sort of we've had our final face-to-face. But I will say throughout end of January and February during class, when we, uh, a lot of my students are international, probably uh, two or three are from China. Um, And so they were, I was seeing their and talking through their anxieties before they became my anxieties, right? So it's like they're talking to family, they're worried about their grandparents, and it's so interesting now that, you know, it's our problem. Um, and we're, we're struggling with the same things I spoke to them about. Um, so I haven't had to deal directly. I am, it is part of Carnegie Mellon. So I am part of the general sort of email communications regarding distance learning and how people are feeling. And I've kept in touch with my students who are still, they were still finishing other classes and had to do them remotely. Um, I think it depends on your program. I think it depends on the flexibility of your teachers, how positive the experience is going to be and has been, but it's difficult. And these programs are very, very expensive. And, and are they as valuable when it's really, I think the youngest generation doesn't equate digital with cheaper or less than my generation and probably to a degree, you know, your, your age group, if you did online anything, it was it was almost less than, right? So you would say, well, I'm taking an online course. So I go, okay, that's not real. That's not right. a real college course. Or online dating always seemed, you know, for those of us who, who just missed those windows, <laughs> seemed 
like dude, harmony and <laughs> yeah it's like ah, that's pathetic you can't go out and meet somebody um but but that was that was a, pre- a prejudicial perspective because we weren't reared in this world where communication is not seen less than when it's right. a, uh, it's just not and and you can make the case that it just inherently isn't because it's the passage of knowledge from me to you and um but i would say that you know, as, as people are looking at, am I going to spend $100,000 for this graduate program? And it's going to be remote. Um, uh, but yeah, so I think, I think there's going to be a, a, a bit of back and forth for the parents who are paying for school and their perception of what a digital education looks like versus mm-hmm. the students. Um, and, you know, I have nieces who one got accepted to, um, where did she, where's she going in Dublin? Um, I'm blanking on the school. Trinity? Uh, Trinity. Yeah, she got accepted to Trinity. Yeah. She hasn't, you know, she's going to go, but I mean, what's it going to be like? Who knows? Is she going to be sitting in her dorm taking classes in Ireland? Yeah. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, it's it's strange. I was talking to one of my uh, clients and they, they have a daughter who was supposed to go to NYU and same sort of thing. The, the dad discussed the options and they came to an agreement. It was a very tough couple months because she was already accepted, ready to go. And, and then now she's going to just, and again, I think the perception, it's like, oh, she's going to now just go closer to home, do a community college, take mm-hmm. online courses. And like you said, that has such like a, a, a weird stigma to it. And, and it's disappointing because she's not going to go to New York. I mean, that would be great. Yeah. Awesome. But, um, but still it's, it's, it, you know, the, I think what this has kind of done is changed our perception on a lot of things and helped us yeah. understand that not everything is um, so different. A lot of, and then this is just the reality of what we're yeah. all in. So kind of interesting. Yeah, I think there's, a, a, you know, I'm involved with a couple of, of nonprofits personally on the board and, um, and you know, we're wrestling with, we, we got a PPP for one of them, um, thankfully, mm-hmm. but it's Global Autism Project and it's an amazing organization and um, the, the, the core premise of, of, of Molly uh, Penny, who created it 15 years ago, is that, you know, in, in these places that are not um, the United States, even some places in Western Europe and Eastern Europe, you know, the, 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 the challenges for a person uh, with uh, autism spectrum disorder begin at birth and don't necessarily ever end. And, and if you're in some countries in Sub-Saharan Africa or West Africa, you're, you know, culturally you're perceived as possessed, right? And, and so what she did was she went in and, and trained local people who would ask for her to come to be the advocates for and the trainers of these families to raise these children without the, the, the terrible treatment that might naturally occur. You know, and then she created these organizations in China that were, you know, we, we helped the curriculum for a university to license people to be therapists for, but you know, we, the core of that organization is sending people who are trained professionals in the United States to go train other people around the world. So, you know, we had a trip scheduled in February and that's also the core way that we generate revenue. So you would go out and raise $5,000 and then you would still buy your ticket and whatever. And we would send you to India or 
somewhere in Africa, depending, you know, or um, all over the world, South America, Central America, for two weeks. So we had to pull the plug. Really, we did it before anyone else because I just said, you know, we we can't have people stranded, right? If this outbreak moves more quickly than, but decimated the the, the sort of idea of the core of. I mean, naturally, the two things I give myself most to are both travel and <laughs> for this nonprofit and huge crowds. Yeah. Uh, so I picked unwisely um, for a pandemic, but the um, but the conversation that we're having uh, as as a board and, and the founder do do we really need an office at all? Do we really like things that you just wouldn't have been comfortable getting rid of are fair right. gaming. Like we don't need an office. Why would, why did we need an office exactly? Right. Somebody giving to us or some kid in China doesn't care if we have an office in Brooklyn. Right. It's, you know, and we were, she's amazing. And she, rent was nothing relative to New York, but, but why? And, and maybe there's better quality of life if everybody has the choice of when to work. And, um, that's a that's a full paradigm shift for the whole country and the world that would not you would have been you know perceived as um, really pushing the envelope if you just made the assertion that nobody needs to come to the office right unless you're you know a pure tech company that yeah built built it that way from the ground up but to pivot mm-hmm. directly to that. Um, and so that's, you know, those are the, the changes that are happening at universities and nonprofits and businesses. And, you know, our, we have an amazingly beautiful office for one iota. Mm-hmm. And there are things that you absolutely do miss in terms of sit, randomly sitting down and having a conversation that leads to something creative. You know, everything has to be intentional when you're online. Right. You know, the, the, serendipitous conversation that you overhear and you contribute to and at least that doesn't happen and so there that is a downside but um but the do we need an office that's a fair question you know yeah yeah it's interesting everyone's asking yeah and i think into and you've mentioned you mentioned it at this kind of the start of the at the podcast was was just how the local governments are still trying to figure out when to open and then there's possible restrictions and six feet, maybe you have 30% capacity, uh, 50% capacity within productions. Do you kind of see a horizon where, or a, like it's a light at the end of the tunnel uh, where you can see you starting back up production and having audiences? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there, there's, there's going to be a first mover, somebody who's willing to say audience and then, mm-hmm. I think the appetite is there as long as there's enough safety precautions. Right. I actually feel that way. I think, you know, however liberal where I am uh, is and, and where I might be, I, I don't disagree with the notion that this is not a sustainable way to deal with it. We just completely hunker down indefinitely. Um, the sad part is we didn't use this time, which was the whole point, to build a system to make it safer. That was kind of the whole idea, right? Is that you slow it down, you figure out how to optimize the testing strategies across the country. And we haven't done a great job, frankly, in California of taking advantage of that. So 
all things being equal, I think we don't really have much of a choice but to try and start reopening and do it in the safest way possible. So I think I think once there's a first mover and a first kind of you know show that says we're going to do it and we're going to do X, Y, and Z for safety, and we'll probably be collaborating with those people to come up with a plan. Yeah, but I think everybody's going to follow suit. And then, you know, we'll be still at the mercy of this virus because science, unfortunately, doesn't really give a shit about um, our desires. So we'll see. No, no, it doesn't. And I don't think that it's going to stop for the sake of us getting some, I don't know, getting out and about and getting our brains right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, and I I have never really struggled with losing myself in, in my job in terms of thinking it's the be all and end all of existence. Right. This is a pretty profound lesson, and who? I mean, come on, people are. You know, what is it? Almost a hundred thousand people have died. Ninety-five thousand as of today. Yeah. Somehow we're okay with that, which is bizarre to me. Um, you know, what I do is help people go to events and and help productions be successful, and and I also help people that work for me learn how to work effectively and grow into ethical people and um but in the end it really doesn't matter it's just like you know the thing that the thing that motivates me is not a delusional commitment to being successful it's it's a it's a real commitment to discovering what quality means in everything i do right and that's the ideal me obviously i'm contending with all my uh insane you know, idiosyncrasies and shortcomings, but, but, you know, when I look back at my career, it's like, okay, why, why do I, even that really silly job where I had the best meals over the course of eight months with a bunch of B team celebrities trying to get them to build apps. Um, I end up being fully committed, but it's not because I think it matters. It's just because I, it just motivates me to try and do the best possible version of whatever it is i'm doing mm-hmm. and and that doesn't translate to many things in my life which is always a great um you know i wish i was the same way about say fitness or and at various points in my life i have but professionally it's just always fallen into that that place of what's the best possible way to do this that might mean by the way doing less sometimes right you know i'm all for working less and achieving more um but but yeah, so so for, for me the the measure of all this stuff is just is it is it good is it quality is it does it you know because you know I went through the phase of I got to make a big difference in the world and spiritually emotionally you know one you 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 shouldn't get paid for that and if you are you're probably a sycophant weirdo uh, but beyond that it's it's kind of a you know, you're eating your own tail, right? It's like, how about just doing good work and being a good person and um, try to figure out how to balance that with making some money. Right. Because we all have to live and money is, money is a real thing. (laughs) It's a real thing, unfortunately. (laughs) But it has, it has made it a much more apparent that it isn't everything. And especially during times like this. I mean, I look at, at our expenses, right? And the absurdity of what, simple things like, you know, delivery and takeout and going out to eat. Um, we haven't stopped that, but basically we're cooking at home yep. 98% of the time. I mean, you know, and we took, 
huge salary reductions across the board at my company. So we're all impacted. We're not, right. you know, uh, it's significant and not sustainable for most of us over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, reevaluating where you spend your money, suddenly it has more meaning than it did, probably in the right way, where you just think the things I tolerated in my own lack of self-discipline. Right. I think Keith, Keith and I used to say that there's a, a massive difference between character and lack of opportunity. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, when you're, when you're uh, in college and you're, and you're in, in this alternative uh, rock vibe and for me in the nineties, but it's like, I will never, I would never drive like a BMW or like materialistic. <laughs> and then, you know, I look back and it's like, cause I couldn't imagine affording one. That's yeah. not, it's not like I had some commitment to, to, you know, not being materialistic. I just couldn't imagine. And then when you can afford one, it's like you suddenly realize it's not a character issue. It's just lack of opportunity. Versus... Right. <laughs> not having that. Yeah. yeah. You can't afford that at 19 year old, you know, in college, yeah, even ramen noodles. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I hope, and, and I know we all do that we get to see audiences back into you know, and production of, of, of yeah. major budget things with, with, um, I mean, there's so many different TV shows, movies that utilize big productions with tons of extras and it makes it feel like real life. And, and it will, it will be a while until production gets back to rolling again. And I know Hollywood, LA, where you are, um, in terms of, you know, basically anything entertainment based has been taking a hit. And I hope that all of it comes back at some point and within the near future, um, you know, we're all knocking on wood <laughs> and rooting yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and I'm hopeful. And I think we will innovate in the interim and see what we can do. Um, but, but probably until there's a vaccine, there's not going to be a full reopening of virtually right. anything, you know? Yeah. And being able to test, making sure everybody's, maybe gotten the antibody antibody test and and they're able yeah. to come into a, a show with a hundred people you know packed yeah. in a room so hopefully we will get that soon uh, but Joe this has really been great and I appreciate your time um, in taking you know I I can't imagine how many times you're on zoom and to, to add one more <laughs> zoom meeting to your day <laughs> it's it's really a pleasure to have you on well apart from developing some sort of um, paranoia about looking at myself speaking and dreaming about <laughs> myself in the third person now yeah um, i uh i appreciate the time and it's been my pleasure awesome well yeah you gotta hide self-view and you gotta you gotta look at the i haven't even thought about doing that until you just said it. i didn't even think <laughs> we'll do it we'll do a zoom tutorial next time all right <laughs> <laughs> awesome well thanks right. joe thanks for joining okay. us here on the queue all right thanks This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media. Q1 Media partners with agencies and brands all across the nation for all their digital marketing needs, whether it's CTV, OTT, location-based mobile device ID targeting, search engine marketing, targeted display, any research and data that you need, whatever it is, Q1 Media can help with your marketing efforts. Please check out Q1 Media's website at q1media.com. That's Q, the number one, media.com. You can view case studies, examples of our work, uh, or just check out more episodes of the podcast, The Q, Conversations in Digital Media.